on the front page of the Sun was this word that I'd <laughs> I'd never never seen before. It was called moratorium, and I saw all these students, these bloody uni students, in the middle of Burke Street carrying placards and that, calling us baby killers and so on and so forth. And that went through the ship within fifteen minutes. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. Tested our metal as a team. They held that man virtually prisoner. Terrible, terrible injustice. Riding out a typhoon in a four and a half thousand ton destroyer. We really feared for our lives. So we got back and we did a march, and I guess that's the memory you hold was all these people booing and hissing as you went and did the march. stations, I went to that turret. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Welcome to Life on the Sea, a special spin-off miniseries of Life on the Line podcast. This miniseries profiles nine veterans of the Royal Australian Navy, who served in either the Korean War or the Vietnam War. This is Episode 6, Korea. This instalment features some of our veterans talking about their life in the Navy after Vietnam, and for some, their life beyond the uniform. Let's start with Douglas Symes Jr. and what he got up to after being at Cerberus with his father. Posted to HMAS Tarangau, which was Papua New Guinea. So I went up there for a year, tropical conditions of Papua New Guinea, uh, to Manus Island. And that was a great life up there. That was really good. It was always said that they sent up the uh, the people that they wanted to get rid of or weren't any good or, you know. But I didn't find that. I found that it was, you know, they're a good mob of blokes and it was a great place to be in. As long as it was a tropical island, for goodness sake. The only thing that was a bit hard was the heat. We didn't have air conditioning in those days. The only place that was air conditioned, I think, was a communication centre. But, you know, there was plenty of uh, social life up there and, and all the blokes used to get together at night and sing and that was something I liked to do and we used to have a lovely time. There wasn't much uh, conflict within the groups of people. It was, it was, we all lived pretty much in harmony. We were only there for a year. We knew what to expect. You're in there for a year and out again. So I did that and then when I left there, I was promoted. I went back to service. Then I was promoted to a petty officer there and I did my course there and then I went to... HMO's Derwent, which, was, which is another river class destroyer escort, the same as the Parramatta, exactly the same virtually. So I was on that one. By coincidence, that was my brother's first ship. My brother joined the Navy after me. Trevor? Yeah, Trev, yeah. He joined the Navy after me. He was there as an odd cook. And then after he left the Derwent, he went to the Parramatta. Oh. So, yeah, so, you know, we had a sort of a... There's a lot of uh, funny connections and overlap in the oh, Navy. Oh, yeah, look... It's incredible how it works. And, and you know, you don't you don't strive for it or anything like that. It's just how, how life sort of pans out. And so we've got a lot in common, my brother and I, but we always were close because we were the first two. I was always a big brother to my little brother. I sort of still am, you know. But anyway, I was uh, promoted to PO, went to the Derwent. Uh, I was on there for two years, came off the Derwent, and uh, just as I was coming off, I met my wife, uh, my wife-to-be, through a chap that was on the ship, uh, he'd paid off, went to live in Queensland. I went up to visit him in Queensland and this girl lived next door and the next thing you know, we're, we're getting married. So so anyway, uh, did that. 
And from there, I went to HMO's Albatross, and then I went to HMO Hewan down in Tasmania. And uh, at the end of uh, 1971, I was married. My wife came down to Hobart, and we lived there for a year. I was promoted in the February of 1972 to Chief, and Dad was still in the Navy at the time. And we were the uh, the first father and son Chief Petty Officers in the Royal Australian Navy, serving at the same time. So I flew over to Melbourne and we got some photos taken and there was a bit of a publicity thing about it, uh, recruiting and stuff. And uh, I went back down there and spent a year down there and subsequently got posted back to Manus Island, where I was as a young bloke. So I was there as a young bloke, as a coac, and then I went back up there as a chief. I was actually in charge of the, the Vittling up there then, and that's where our son was born. We stayed there for two years, two very good years of our life. Came back to Australia, and I was posted to Cuttable, then I went to HMR Stalwart. I was on Stalwart for a year. That was good because it went up to uh, New Guinea to do the I was there with their independence, and then they got their tough government in 75. I went up for that. Uh, so, you know, I've got a, a certain affiliation with Papua New Guinea. One of Dad's uncles, he was a, he was a Symes. He was a deputy health a deputy health inspector or whatever it was in New, New Guinea for some time. Uh, people from my uh, other side, my mother's side, they lived up in New Guinea for some time. So New Guinea, you know, flows through our, our system. And when we come back from there, I was posted to uh, Penguin. The naval base. Yeah, the naval base in Penguin. And that's where our daughter was born, in Manly. And from there, I posted back to service. Spent four years there. And then I subsequently paid off after 20 years. Not long after his father-in-law's passing... David Dwyer's wife fell pregnant. The due date was dangerously close to David's discharge date. This presented David with a conundrum. My wife became pregnant when I was ashore. The baby was due in November 1972, which was close to my discharge date. I wanted to stay in the Navy because I was been there since I was 17 and I really liked my service. I liked the Navy. I liked the camaraderie. I liked everything about it. And I was came out on a... Uh, posting note to go to HMAS Melbourne. The, the flagship. Yeah, the flagship, which was going up north in November. I spoke to my wife and said, well, I'm not going to be home when the baby's born. What do you want me to do? I'll do what you want. She said, no, I need you at home. So the Cato wanted, he said, well, you'll be made PO while you're at sea. Think about it. So I'd done the advanced cooking course at Cerberus. Everything was in place to be made, that extra rank. But I decided I would take a discharge DEE, they call it discharge, enlistment ended. But I knew I couldn't break like that. I'd, I'd have withdrawal symptoms. So I transferred to the Royal Australian Navy Reserve and I uh, was discharged on the 24th of November 1972, joined the uh, Reserve on the 25th, and my son was born on the 26th. I always know his, his birth date. In that period from 1972 to 1997, I picked my petty officers up in, in the reserves and I came back to Cerberus. Again? Yeah, just to do, uh, I think it was three months. I'd come back previous to that as a leading hand for a couple of weeks. Reserve service was every Tuesday night down at HMAS Londasdale in Port Melbourne with regular periods at sea for two weeks, three weeks, depending on the ship you went. I did a lot of time in um, patrol boats, which I absolutely adored. They were great. My wife, by this time, had, we'd moved 
from our Navy house into a house that was quite close to her family and mine. So I didn't feel too bad. The baby was good. I felt comfortable to go to sea. My wife was well um, serviced by family and friends. So did a lot of work up in uh, out of Cairns, Darwin, and during the time of the boat people from Vietnam. If a boat was discovered with uh, refugees, we'd tow them into Darwin. Also at service, I did instruction period there in the catering school. This this is a condensed version of uh, over 20 years. Uh, I went to a couple of Type 12s as the PO cook uh, for brief periods of time. And... Um, GPVs, general purpose vessels, served in them. Uh, and then the new Fremantle class patrol boat, I served in that as a PO because I didn't have any cooks, the reserve cooks that could go there. I didn't mind that. I slept with the ship's company, but uh, I didn't particularly worry. In that period of time, too, I worked in oil rigs and uh, they released you for a, a, your service in the um, in the fleet under the Act. They had to and didn't affect my seniority. I worked in a, a myriad of jobs as a chef, in clubs, in mines, in construction barges, in a telephone cable barge, laying cable out of uh, Geraldton. All this time I'm away from the wife and uh, we'd had another child by then. But my wife's pretty strong and she uh, could handle it, uh, the separation. Indisposed with trips to sea in the reserves or down at Cerberus, I'd about after 20 years, I, I got made chief petty officer and I would go down to Cerberus and the catering officer that was there was uh, one of my young AB cooks when I was a leader and as things would have it, his father was my first chief cook in Vendetta in 1964. So it all strung together and I remained friends with him right through until he passed away. I had my own company for a while, catering company, but I uh, every cook's best friend, osteo and arthritis, got me. And I had to give it up. And in 2000, I went and worked in a county court in Melbourne as a tip staff to a judge, which is um, each judge had a tip staff and a, an associate. I had a female judge, first female boss I'd ever worked for. She was a jewel. And I was a good manager of time. That's why she liked me. I, a judge has to have her time managed. And along with the associates, there were four in the period I was with her for seven years. Oh, they were all great. I also became the secretary of the tip staff social club. And also I did... A lot of functions for judges. If a judge would retire, they'd have a farewell and I would do the catering for that. And uh, the tip staffs, I had a happy hour every every payday, which was every two weeks. The tip staffs, there were 64 of them, 60 were ex-service. So they all understood what it was all about, a happy hour. It was just to spread camaraderie and um, we all, no matter what service we're in, we had the similar similar stories and we I liked it. I liked um, very much being in the uh, county court Prior to my um, discharge from the Navy, I joined this association, the HMAS Sydney VLSVA, as secretary. I was the inaugural secretary. I did it for a couple of years, had a break for 18 months and went back and I've been doing it as secretary or a member of the committee for the past 30 years. Jim Dixon was fleet navigator on the Melbourne until mid-1972, then XO of the Naval College in Jarvis Bay. Jim deeply loved training people. He had some interesting highlights from his time in the college. Prince Philip came down to the Naval College when we were there and uh, I engineered that in a way which uh, hadn't pleased the lordships in Canberra very much but his equerry had been a shipmate of mine in Tata and I'd written to his equerry and said that on the forthcoming royal visit could uh, HRH you know, spare the time to come see the Naval College at Jarvis Bay and uh, he wrote back and said yeah delighted love to you know and I said well you better get in and put it in 
in the itinerary. And he said, no, it's all got to come from your end. Well, then we had to tell the uh, powers in Canberra that uh, Prince Philip wanted to come. And uh, <laughs> they were not pleased. But anyway, from the Creswell, I went to command HMS Yarra, one of the river-class frigates, and that was a fairly uneventful time in lots of ways. A good command to get, bigger than the minesweeper I'd had, you know, but, uh, and it was a command and 18 months there was... You're well into the long piece by now, though, so there's... Uh, the, yeah. The Navy's doing things, but there's less happening. And I wasn't with the fleet m much of the time at all because we were doing trials on a bit of a sonar equipment. And there's nothing more boring than trials week after week with scientists dictating where the ship will go and what it'll do. So although it was peaceful enough, it wasn't operationally satisfying. And the greatest fun we had there in the Arrow was uh, uh, going to pick up Sir John Kerr, the Governor General in 1977, or sorry, it was in 1976 that he went up to having dismissed the Whitlam government in 75. He tried to get away for a break up at Hamilton Island. I was operating off the east coast of Australia and got a secret signal saying, go and pick up the Governor-General at Hamilton Island, take him to Mackay. That was a, a wonderful experience because we had an American midshipman on board or an ensign and, and there was a bit of excitement for the ship's company and so on. You saved the Governor-General. <laughs> He was a fascinating man. After Yarra, command of Yarra, I was sent to America to the United States Naval War College at Newport, Rhode Island, for a one-year course up there. That's uh, quite prestigious to get into. There only There's only one from only each. one each country each yeah. year. Yeah, I was lucky to be there, and I'd done the Royal Navy Staff course, and then thought myself very lucky to get the U.S. Naval War College one as well, which was a Marvellous experience. I'd seen the US Navy operating at sea, been part of it in Vietnam and so on. Get the experience of seeing them ashore and this course had privileged access to this and the other thing. We were flown all over the country and shown America and it was a real mind-broadening thing which gave me contacts galore with people around, you know, in navies all around the world. You're interacting with prestigious, successful fellow naval officers such as yourself from all, what, up to 40, 50 other countries? Mm. Well, there were 32 on the course. I think it's a bit larger. Maybe may a bit bigger, yeah. Marvellous exposure and a great experience. And then, having done that, I came home and went to Canberra, second half of 1977, went to Canberra in command of the Naval Tactical Data Centre at Fishwick, the Software Support Centre, which was supporting the computerised operational system in the DDGs, the Guided Missile Destroyers. It wasn't a job I enjoyed. It was my first Canberra appointment. I had been regarded with envy by most of my contemporaries because I had avoided Canberra and I'd had all the good jobs at sea and goodness knows what, and three commands, and, or two commands at that stage. And, uh, and I thought I was uh, pretty privileged to do that. Canberra was an eye-opener. I should have gone there a lot earlier because it was, it's a different world. Arriving there with four stripes on my arm as a four-stripe captain, 
I, did, I hardly knew what a, a FAS or a First Assistant Secretary was from a DEPSEC or a, and I didn't know all the ins and outs of the bureaucracy and how to operate, which you needed to learn further down the line. And it was a, not an enjoyable time for me, particularly that 77 to 80. Like Mark Kinder, John Lord was on the Brisbane for its final deployment to Vietnam. After the Brisbane returned to Australia, John found himself a new posting. What came after the patrol boat? Well, I did my 12, I suppose, months there, came back to Australia and joined HMAS Vendetta down here in Melbourne, I think. It was coming out of refit. I was going to be just the communications officer, but then got grabbed to go up and be the aide-de-comp to the Chief of Navy in Canberra, which was something you're never trained for. You're, all you want to do is stay at sea, of course, at that stage. It was still exciting and you're doing things. So I was grabbed and sent up to Canberra for 18 months as the aide-de-comp to the Chief of Navy, which... That's another world. In hindsight, it was a completely different world. In hindsight, it was a very, very rewarding job. Um, I was there during the selection of the whole new destroyer project where we bought Perth, Hobart and Brisbane. The first time we'd ever bought United States Navy ships instead of British ships. Huge decision. And I was in the Chief of Navy's office while those types of deliberations went on. So it was, it was pretty exciting. So where did you go after the aide-de-comp position? Right, aide-de-comp, I then went back to Vendetta, but as a navigating officer, which is what I'd always wanted to be ever since those days in Vietnam when I was the assistant bombardment navigating officer and plotting where the shells That had convinced me to be a navigator. So I went back to uh, HMAS Vendetta as the navigating officer, which was... Uh, which was great, as a not a fully qualified navigator, so you had to go to UK to do that, which I did subsequently, but went back to do my first navigation uh, job, which was good. At that time, the first Timor event happened, so we were up in Darwin standing by to go into Timor if required, so that was that was uh, fairly exciting. Cyclone Tracy occurred, so we were part of the RN contingent that sailed up and arrived at, in Darwin, what, about six days after the cyclone went through and did the clear-up. So all those things happened. So, yeah, for a, at that stage, it was about 24 years of age. It was still a very exciting time in the Navy. Can you tell me about Tracy? I was duty on Christmas Day there in Sydney. We had bits of our ship all over the wharf being repaired because you always did work over Christmas. And Tracy occurred. The Navy was told it would sail. We recalled everyone back to the ship and we got more sailors back than we ever sent on leave. And that was because all those in uh, shore establishments or not on warships time volunteered to go. It was a huge effort. 24 hours after being told to go, we sailed with HMAS Melbourne for Darwin, which was just a great effort to have nearly the whole Navy at sea within 24 hours. It was just fantastic. Airlines flew sailors back for free from all over Australia just to get them back. And we all equipped, stored, and off we went. It took us six days to get there. I think it was six or seven days. And when we arrived there, they'd got most of the women and children out, I think, and most of the people there were those that were staying and mainly blokes watching TV because they weren't working too hard. Then we came along and did the work. It was a real eye-opener. It was a great effort, great spirit amongst us Defence Force personnel in helping the people of Darwin. I mean, I have one memory there of going into the Woolworths store, food store out at uh, further out in Darwin, just forget the suburb at the moment. This was two weeks after the cyclone and we went in there in protective suits and the whole store was moving. And the reason it was moving was all these things were in the food. You can imagine what it was like. It was just awful. We could stand it about half an hour, go out, throw up and then go back in as we cleared it out. It was just revolting. But yeah, it was, that was an eye opener. So it's 1974. You've been in the Navy nine years and seen quite a lot at this point. At this point, do you reflect on your career and go, this has been huge, action-packed, have you had enough or you just set your sights on want to keep going? What are your goals? 
That's a good question, and one uh, now you you talk about when you talk to young people, and you know, over my career, and particularly now in the commercial world, I talk to a lot of people in different contexts. When you joined a job back when you're 15 or 18 or 20, in my era, it was a lifetime job. So if you went to the PMG Telstra, you were going to be a Telstra for life. So when I took on Navy, even though I knew nothing about it, never been the boat, it was for life. I never thought about doing anything else. It was always the Navy. So you just kind of said, right. And you move in Navy, like in Army and Air Force, every two or three years. You'd say, oh, I've been in um, Vendetta 18 months. They must be thinking about where they're going to send me next. I wonder what it is, you know. And you might try and hint that you want to the captain, you want to go somewhere or do something different or you know, want to go to another part. But it was always Navy focused. And I, I guess I never had any thought of leaving the Navy at that time at all. Whereas these days where careers are so all over the place, that's a just quite different mentality. Yeah, it is. I, I guess I went through a stage when I was about 40 that I might want to get out of the Navy, but only because a friend of mine was in the commercial world making a hell of a lot more money. That seemed very exciting. <laughs> and then, of course, at the age of 50, I left prematurely a little bit too. I could have stayed on for a few more years. So they're about the only two times that I've done it. But bear in mind, Navy did shift me around every two to three years. So I was changing jobs anyway. I mean, going to completely different jobs. Uh, we talked about just earlier, I was I was uh, about to be communications officer of Indebted and then all of a sudden I became um, the aide-de-comp to the chief of Navy in Canberra, completely different. Same, yeah, d- different jobs, some are promotions, some same are company, movements. It's, it's the same company, exactly, yeah. and you're just taking different positions within the company. Yeah. After a deployment to Southeast Asia, John was sent to the UK for warfare and navigation training in 1975. Then something unexpected happened next. So where do you find yourself after your honeymoon? Honeymoon, I come back to Australia and I go to sea. I leave my wife, she has to go and find jobs in Sydney, not knowing anyone in Australia, but that's, that's, that's the that, life that of a naval wife, as they say. Um, so I, I joined um, HMAS Hobart as the navigating officer, and I stayed there for the next three odd years as the navigating officer, which was a great period. A bit of a forerunner, because then I went back and captained Hobart subsequently. So I knew the ship pretty well by the time I became captain. After three years as navigator. So I did that for three years. What did we do? We went to uh, Hawaii doing major exercises called RIM, RIM of the Pacific, with the US Navy, Koreans, Japanese, all, all of us get together once every two years in Hawaii, did a couple of those deployments. Um, several deployments just out into then the South Pacific, standard peacetime naval operations, really. Yeah, so it was peacetime, and uh, you, know, you did lots of things like go around Australia, uh, cocktail parties, take people to sea, major exercises off the coast, exercises with the Americans off Queensland, all these, uh, over to New Zealand for major exercises. It, it was that type of period uh, of peacetime naval operations, which in their own way were very exciting, but it was, you, know, you got into a routine and you knew what was happening. So Hobart had a four-strike captain in command. Phil Philip Kennedy was the first one who went on to become an admiral, and the second captain was uh, Tony Horton, who went on to become an admiral and became a very close personal friend and still is today. We had a, being having a four-strike captain meant that you were a task group leader. So the added challenge for the navigating officer on board was you also helped the captain run a group of ships. So we would be in charge of 20 ships at a time or 10 ships or four ships as a task group. So that was uh, just added excitement, I think, or added challenge to the job. I also asked John about the 1987 Welcome Home March, and we talked further on the war's controversy. When the Welcome Home March comes around, does that sort of, I know for many Vietnam veterans who retired after Vietnam, or Vietnam was the extent of their service, mm. that was a sort of very long overdue form of closure. How was that for you? 
No, it wasn't. I was well and truly over it by then. I think because I stayed in the military, you move on. And and it'd be fair to say that stayed with me five years, perhaps ten years, you know, a little bit of resentment. But that was it. By then I'd moved on, I'd rescued people, I'd done cyclone relief. When I was captain of Adelaide, I was in the um, I was the last Australian Navy ship alongside in Fiji for the first Fiji coup, evacuating Australians. Um, so you, you just moved on. and You're busy, you're getting on with your you're job. You're getting on with your job. And, and I guess also in the uniform in the military, I started to have uh, far more interactions with the Australian population and they weren't like they were back then. So they'd moved on. And, and it was easy for me to see that. Perhaps those Vietnam veterans who went out into civilian life, got on with their jobs and raised kids and had to do all that, didn't have time to stop and take stock of that because they didn't. They weren't wearing the uniform every day, so therefore the uniform hadn't become part of Australian society and accepted, which I'd been able to see a lot earlier. After Vietnam, a few of the veterans featured in this series felt the pull to leave the service and try something new. Willie Beatty had a great time in Hawaii with Derwent and heading all around the Far East. But after that, he did not hang around too long. And where were you posted next? Uh, I left to do it and I went ashore for two months and I paid off. That was it. They asked me to rejoin and I, I was married in and uh, I'd lost my dad when I was on the do it and they wouldn't give me leave. I thought I got a bit upset with that. And uh, then my wife had a miscarriage and they wouldn't give me leave again and I got a bit upset with that. And after that, I sort of said, well, it's just not for me, so yeah. I got out of it after that. Mistreatment by the Navy, mistreated for being in the Navy by yeah. the public. Yeah. These things yeah. all kind of coalesced and... Yeah, yeah. Well, when my dad, we did a little refit at Williamstown and we were leaving and I went and seen the engineer and I said, I've got to, I've got to have a leave because my dad's got cancer. He's in hospital and he said the priest ran, he said the last rites. And he said to me, you can't have a leave till you die. And we sailed four o'clock and he died at eight o'clock that night, so... And I had to wait two days to get to Jarvis Bay before they let me go ashore. So, and I had to hitchhike home, which I wasn't wasn't impressed with. So, I sort of put a bit of a dark spot on it for me. I can it's imagine the time that. of my career. Yeah, it's terrible. Then my wife had a miscarriage, and once again, no, you can't leave. And I thought, well, another dark spot. I thought after that, and they asked me to sign. And I goes, no, no, I'm done now, thank you. I got out after that. So, I've got three kids now. So, it'll be beautiful. What did you go on to do after the navy? Well, I joined. I wanted to go in the fire brigade and I went to Melbourne, in Melbourne City, to see the specialist doctor regarding me medical. And I was fully clear medical at Navy and I went and seen him. I sat there from 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock and he said to me, uh, no, he's too busy, you have to come back tomorrow. So I got another day off service the next day, come back the next day. He said, no, he's too busy, you have to come back tomorrow. So I got another day and come back. He said, no, he's too busy, you have to come back tomorrow. And I was talking to my elder brother who's a builder and he said, stuff it, come with me. So I went and building after that become a builder went to night school become a builder and was a builder ever since did it all my own way so and loved it loved being a builder and i got a couple of navy mates every i give them a week's work when they're getting out of the navy to re, rebuild the town quite a few of them actually come and give me work for me for a week as they're getting out of the navy so give them a little of uh, civilian training and things so uh, half of them work and half of them bugger off for the week anyway so you know but no nah, but no nah, it was good no nah, thoroughly enjoyed it thoroughly enjoyed it what have you observed of skills transference? Because I often hear that the naval qualifications or defence qualifications in general are under-recognised in the civilian world yeah. because, for example, with the Navy, if you're trained in any particular specialty, you can't just specialise to the nth degree. You have to be able to apply those skills across a much wider range yeah. of tasks because yeah. the ship has to depend on you to deal with any particular yeah. problem. That's right, yeah. That 
jack of all trades is actually quite valuable in that context and that's not always recognized in civvy street what have you observed personally or among friends colleagues with that kind of difficulty transitioning well yeah a lot of them found it very hard i mean you've got what you call mechanicians and they they don't sort of know what they are they can't become they can become baller maker watch keepers that's a bit the size of it whether it's they're more a mechanic they've got to get more pay electrician well like they're only my friend at the moment is an electrician but and he had a couple of Navy guys working for him, but it's not the same qualification, so they had to go to school to get really new paperwork. So it's really, yeah, it doesn't you know, cross over that, that well. So but as a builder, it did. I was quite quite lucky, actually. So I just went to night school for a year and got it all. I was lucky because of my brother there, so which is good. And you invested in yourself, but you still had to do the work of, that's right. you know, requalifying. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. But I'm out of it now. My son's doing it now, so he's taking over my business. So I'm doing a good job today. So that's been a long time. So and you get a good living out of it and uh, hard work. But that's one thing the military teaches. You're never afraid of, never afraid of hard work. Nothing's as hard as uh, being a stoker in that room. No, nothing, nothing, nothing. People don't realise that, as I say, you put your overalls on and as soon as you hit the bottom plate, you're, you're sweating. I mean, not just you're full on sweating, you're soaked. It's the first thing you do is get a share. You have to. But no, no. They call, that's why they call it the black hole, the gang, the black gang. That's why we all stole our ice off the cook, so. You mentioned after you discharged, you stayed away from servicemen and interacting with them yeah, so yeah. much. Oh, for quite a long time, quite a few years, yeah, quite a few years. Was that partly because, obviously, the black marks you held against the Navy, or was it also to do with the Vietnam conflict? Mainly the conflict, Vietnam conflict, what they what they put us through. I didn't appreciate that. I thought, well, I can't understand we did. We were helping our blokes, and uh, to be treated like that, even them blokes to be treated like that, I thought was just, you know, it's totally un-Australian, but the way they just, I mean, to shit thrown at you, blood, bottles of blood, and pissed on. and I mean, it's, it's not a good feeling, and you can't do nothing. I mean, I just sort of said, oh, bugger this. I've got nothing to do with it anymore, so I give it away. But uh, a couple of blokes I joined up with, uh, Dennis and Mick, said it's not about you, get your medal, it's not about you, it's about your kids. So I thought, oh, okay, so I turned away and got my medals, and lo and behold, I had a few of them, and, and we started doing Anzac Day. Uh, I've been to Sydney, Brisbane, Perth. We all met together Anzac Day every year for... Then we go somewhere every year with eight of us, and um, we're still doing it. So this year we're going back to the Gold Coast. So, so we'll be still doing it then. So, uh, they're all getting a bit worried because they're getting a bit older. No, no, we're still doing it. Still meet each other all the time, so which is good. The other blokes are joined up with. Slept next to it the first day. So it's brilliant. John Carroll also wanted something new. Where were you off to after Sydney? Uh, I came back to Lonsdale, fleet maintenance, and then I decided I would uh, go back into the reserve, 73. What inspired that? I wanted to be able to do something else. I wanted to stay on the reserve list, but uh, my fill of uh, the Navy per se, I ended up as a senior shipwright surveyor with the Marine Board of Victoria, remained in the reserve. As a chief petty officer? As a chief petty officer. At that time, they were calling the Marine Technician Hull. Being a surveyor, I had to be able to be accredited with all the, the uh, classification societies. I worked for Department of Defence for three years as a technical officer, and then I went into teaching. What were you teaching? Originally started off teaching boat building at Berry Street in Footscray, at Bata Footscray Tech. I couldn't get a, a, a full teaching load for a student teacher, so they farmed me out to secondary. I was teaching woodwork to young people. Now, John, I introduced you at the start of our conversation as John Carroll, but you are, in fact, Dr. John Carroll and have multiple doctorates under your belt. Can you talk to me about your various doctorates and thesis writing and what you're doing with yourself today? I've got three PhDs, well, two PhDs and an EDD. When I was 
teaching, I uh, decided I would try and get into a, a university. This came about with, uh, I did a paper on visual perception and the psychologist that looked at that said, this is great stuff, uh, you could probably get into university, it's, it's an obvious university standard. So I got cheeky once I picked up my diploma and, and grad dip from, from Hawthorne Teachers College. I went across to Monash University as a mid-year intake in 19, 1984. I completed my B.Ed. in 1986. I did a Master's in edu- Educational Studies. I finished that in 89. And one of my supervisors for that was a, a Professor Murray Bolton. And Murray said, in front of my daughter, he said, I think you do a damn good PhD. I had a lot of time for Murray. He was um, an Adlerian psychologist, the psychology of Alfred Adler. First, I gave it a bit of thought and I thought, well, Heck, why not? So I completed my first doctorate in 1993. It was examined in the United States and it came back without any recommendations for alterations or additions. Fantastic. Completely. The dean gave me a, a gold star and a tick in the box and I graduated in 1993 as with my first doctorate. In the year 2000, I was starting to get a bit itchy about doing something else, so I, I put in to do the professional doctorate in education. Uh, I met up with Professor David Harvey, and he agreed to supervise. I wrote a thesis on encouragement, which I thought was an adequate, uh, very adequate topic to do it on. I toured around Victorian secondary school, got a fair sample, and developed a frequency of encouragement scale which is still being used in the United States. Dr. Dan Eckstein and Professor Richard Watts at Sam Houston University use it. Dynamite Dan wrote back and, and said that it was great stuff. Nobody in Australia wants to touch it. <laughs> I'm not particularly worried about that. It was published in the Journal of Individual Psychology in 2005. I think they justified by doing that. While I was at Monash, I thought, it was too good an opportunity to waste, so I went to the arts faculty and asked one of the historians there whether they would supervise me while I did a, a PhD in history. And uh, Dr Jane Drakehard said that she would. In 2013, I picked up my third doctorate in, in arts history. And it's, the title of that was uh, The Royal Australian Navy in Vietnam. Fantastic cover shot. Yeah, that was taken by a leading diver. Tony I. Out of Sight, Out of Mind, The Royal Australian Navy in Vietnam, 1965-1972, to John R. Carroll. And that was the title of the thesis. After experiencing the Melbourne-Evans collision and time in Vietnam, Mark Kinder also felt it was time to move on. Tell me about when you finally left the Navy and why. We had uh, a cutback in defence. We had a change of government and we had the opportunity to get out after a certain period of time. And uh, by that time, I was feeling very restless. I'd got my life skill um, cooking, but I knew that I would never do it outside my uh, I wanted to go elsewhere with uh, my life and I wanted a career outside. So uh, I started uh, studying uh, sales and marketing at the Australian Institute of uh, Management and managed to get um, some very, very good uh, executive jobs on the way through and uh, went from strength to strength. I didn't really look back on leaving Navy and transiting into civilian life as as any great uh, problem at all. It just was like getting off the train on one platform and crossing over and getting onto another, another train. I did not have that problem. Maybe it was because I was exposed at 3M Company to a lot of the sales reps in the three years prior to joining Navy that 
might have set me up for that. Also went back and, and uh, did some more schooling and uh, did a lot more um, sales and marketing courses as well. I think that was the key to me um, being a little bit uh, bit easier with myself in later years and not being so hard on myself in terms of, of my military life because a lot of guys go through a lot of spaces of, like I said, this guilt and hopelessness of things that have happened to them. But I think the engagement of the type of people I had when I got out of Navy uh, helped me with that. But I was always very wary of saying I was a Vietnam veteran because you could see in their eyes something and jumping back there, the six foot from me. <laughs> so I didn't say too much about Vietnam. What year was it that you discharged? 74. You were serving through the height of the anti-Vietnam sentiment, but did that still reach you while you were serving or did that hit you more afterwards? Well, that's basically why I said I wouldn't sort of class myself at that stage as being a Vietnam veteran, even though I was, I was aware of um, the feelings against us. Were you just aware of it or were you negatively affected by it? Or Well, I'll give you an example. One morning we wake up on board the ship. We've taken in mail. Uh, I've got a Herald Sun. I've got the sun in front of me that my mum sent me. Um, so as the other blokes got their Mercury who came from Tasmania and so on and so forth. And on the front page of the sun was this word that I'd, <laughs> I'd never, never seen before. It was called moratorium. And I saw all these students, these bloody uni students in the middle of Burke Street carrying placards and that, calling us baby killers and so on and so forth. And that went through the ship within 15 minutes, that feeling, because a lot of the other guys had got those papers as well. And we hadn't had a paper drop for six weeks. So all of a sudden, the whole world's turned against us. And the feeling and the morale on the ship dipped significantly within 15 to 20 minutes. It was well, what are we doing here? Um, how come? How come Australia's turned against us? It was it was as if we were gobsmacked. We were walking around, sort of uh, distant looks on our face. Um, we got over that pretty quick, and uh, I think that turned into a bit of resentment uh, in terms of the guys on board the ship, from shock and horror and disappointment and disillusionment to to a bit of anger. Commodore Jim Dixon carried on in the Navy for many more years. I then went in command of the Brisbane. Two years in command of the Brisbane guided missile destroyer, which the third of, which I loved. We had some fairly exciting deployment or an exciting deployment up to the northwest Indian Ocean. There was stuff going on which you may have read about, but long before you were born, you know, that part of the world. The Iranian hostage crisis you may have heard of, that had abated by the time we got up there, but there was still tension in the area. But it meant going up, integrating with the units of the 7th Fleet again, and I felt comfortable doing that, again, giving another ship's company experience of working with a bigger sort of fleet. And we deployed to Hawaii for RIMPAC exercises in 82. And I came ashore in 82 and I was appointed to go and get HMS Invincible, the carrier, which was to replace the Melbourne. And I was going to fill in in Canberra for a few months and then go to UK and pick up the Invincible in command and commissioner and bring her out to Australia. And then uh, Malcolm Fraser and Maggie Thatcher decided that the sale wouldn't go through and my uh, ultimate command sort of disappeared and I finished up in a paper shuffling job in Canberra for six months which drove me up the wall until I was appointed as Director of Public Information in the Defence Department which I did for a year and a half in mid-83 to the end of 84. And what rank are you at this stage? I was promoted Commodore for that, for that to go into that. And uh, at the end of 84, I was sent to UK to 
and do the RCDS, the Royal College of Defence Studies. I didn't think I had a hope of doing that because I'd done all these other international courses, but uh, they said, no, go and do that. The most wonderful year of my career. It was a magnificent uh, experience, the RCDS. And uh, I did that in 85. My army contemporary was Michael Jeffrey, the, the now the later the Governor-General. And there was an Air Force fellow as well and were lectured by the tops, people at the top, you know, Maggie Thatcher and King Constantine and goodness knows, Caspar Weinberger, the American Secretary of State and so on. And uh, just a wonderful experience the whole year. And uh, this was to prepare one you know, for higher appointments because a lot of it was focused on strategy and defence management. And I came home from there, went to... Uh, the job as Director General Plans and Policy in Navy Office and was there 86, 87, had been given indications that I was going on to higher things, but uh, then my chief called me in and said he'd decided that he needed to promote somebody not as old as I was and uh, invited me to go elsewhere. Uh, effectively, I was passed over and put out to grass and... Uh, and my career, which I'd seen as having a very good future, was effectively terminated at that point. I, in fact, came down and uh, was sent down to Cerberus in command, and there I was in command from beginning of 88 to the beginning in, or to the end of 1990, nearly three years there. And again, being back among sailors, being in a training establishment, I reveled in it, loved that job and all that went with it and decided I'd, I could have gone back to Canberra but I could see that I wasn't going to go anywhere and I decided I'd get out and uh, make my future down here. That's what I've done. Your final role is in arguably your favourite kind, training and yep. teaching. Yep. But after such a long career devoted to the Navy to just be passed over like that, how did you feel at the time? I felt bitter at the time. I still... I still harbour those feelings. I try and suppress them. I'd been, been highly recommended for promotion from a whole lot of sources. I think I'm not being vain in saying that the Navy expected me to be promoted. I was bitterly disappointed because I had some ideas about where the Navy should go and I wanted to be part of reshaping the Navy for the, the 2000s. And I had strong ideas about the closer relationship, cutting down the barrier between the military uniform and the civilian populace. And also about such things as nuclear power. I, I think, you know, we should have gone that way at that stage. And anyway, it was not to be, you can't argue with your, you know, when your chief says, uh, you know, that's it, uh, you go. So I've gone and I have been lucky to uh, enjoy 25 years of retirement down here. Picked up the threads and done some interesting things here. Such as? Oh, well, I, initially I ran a little company trying to digitise the births, marriages and deaths. We were moving into the computer age. I was then appointed to the Police Board of Victoria when the Kennett government came in in 1992. Sir John Young, the ex-Chief Justice, was appointed as chairman. Police Commissioner Neil Comrie was the chief cop and they wanted a military guy and I was walking the streets and Jeff Kennett uh, said, you know, like you for that job. And uh, I did that for seven years. 
I sat on the Veterans Review Board reviewing the um, pension entitlements of widows and uh, those who put in claims at the DVA. I needed to top up my pension and I got very involved with ex-Navy things in the ex-Navy community down here and legacy and scouts and one or two things in the civilian community. I really effectively stopped working after a bit past 70 and uh, the last 10 years have relaxed and enjoyed golfing, gardening and watching my grandchildren grow up and generally sort of growing old. And now let's come back to Rear Admiral John Lord. And then finally I got selected for command for HMAS Adelaide. And I guess that is the ultimate of your career. From the time you graduated from Naval College as a seaman officer, you wanted to have a command, so you finally get one. And that was when I was about um, 87, so 37, 38 years of age. Can you describe Adelaide for me? Yeah, Adelaide is a was, it's now uh, a dive wreck, uh, a guided missile frigate, uh, US, because by then we'd moved very heavily to US. They were frigates the US made. Uh, we had four of them initially and, and then built up to six. I went to Adelaide, based out of Sydney, and uh, with a crew of about 180, 200 people, I suppose. I will be honest and say, and I still I said it at the time, and I say it to everyone now, as I walked on board that ship in command, I felt totally comfortable. And the reason was, I was fully qualified. Your whole naval career had led you to that moment, and it had done it so well that you felt confident, qualified, ready to go. And the real challenge you knew was to get your sailors as motivated as you were. That's what it was all about. And did you achieve that? I hope so. You'd have to ask the sailors. <laughs> uh, no, it was good. It was a very uh, rewarding time. Uh, we did the uh, 1988 bicentenary during that. But I guess the most exciting time was we did a deployment out to the South Pacific. Been out there about a month or two or whatever it was, and we pulled into Latoka, and that was the time that Sitvani Rambuka decided to have the coup in Fiji. And uh, we in Adelaide were alongside Natoka. The government decided that we had to remain there, even though the Fiji government was saying, you must leave, because I think we had about 3,500 Australian tourists across Fiji, and they wanted to fly them out first. So um, we stayed there against the Fiji government's wishes of the day and played a bit of politics and all those types of things, and then sailed at 3 a.m. in the morning, snuck out when all Australians had been evacuated. So that was uh, very, very exciting. At times there, I was being directed by 13 different government agencies of what to do while I was alongside. And to give him his credit, Rear Admiral Peter Sinclair at the time, who was Fleet Commander, he phoned me up on day two and said, right, how's it going, John? What's the problems? And I said, well, there's a few problems, like 13 different departments in Canberra trying to tell me what to do. And he sorted that right out. And, you know, that was Australia, I think, getting used to having having to have a command and control line, political to military, right down to ship level, which we'd never really had to do as that often as a country before. Because what was your chain of command there? That had to be the Maritime Commander, who was Peter Sinclair. And so then he would go back into Canberra. So, John, after you take that first confidence step onto HMAS Adelaide, you go through a series of command positions. You ultimately retire from the Royal Australian Navy at the rank of Rear Admiral. Can you walk me through the growth of yourself as a commander from that first command of one ship to then you know, task force and ultimately a fleet? It's not a, a long tail, but it is one of, uh, I guess, changing perspectives. You're right. The first command, I think, is is probably the ultimate. You've been trained for it, you're confident, and it's very, very exciting. And, you know, you're leading a team of sailors, and that, that, that is just 
It's the, the dream. Ultimate. It is the dream. You've reached it. The next command I had was uh, HMAS uh, Hobart, which uh, guided missile destroyer, slightly larger ship, larger ship's company. Greater responsibility there really comes from commanding other ships as, uh, as well. And that's what you do when you become a captain in command. And that was very exciting, taking task groups over to work with the Americans uh, on the west coast of, uh, of the USA running out of San Diego. But I guess uh, the actual thrill of the command wasn't quite the same as that that uh, very first command. Uh, throughout my career, from that first command up until leaving the Navy in the year 2000, at the age of 50, um, I had a mixture of shore and sea positions. Uh, I was the commander of flotillas as a Commodore that was going to sea with a team of about 50, training and working up other ships. That's, that, that, you know, that was very rewarding. But you work them up, you pump them out, they get on and do their job, and you move on to another ship. I guess for me, the second most challenging and most exciting position I had was Commander Northern Command, which was based in Darwin. Northern Command was formed as Australia's first high-tech joint headquarters. And my predecessor, who was an Air Force officer, Com uh, Air Commodore, set it up. But he unfortunately left before he got to use it, and I was the first one to actually use it as a Naval Commodore. I was posted there as the first Naval Commodore. We were able to put all the high-tech electronics in there, and then we had Kangaroo 95, which was a major exercise across Northern Australia to test the concept of Joint Command. Army, Navy and Air Force forces, some 18 to 20,000. 2,000 were from overseas and 18,000 Australians. A couple of brigades, plenty of Navy ships and aircraft. As a naval officer commanding that broad force, it was the first time that allowed a naval officer to do it. It was just so rewarding. And having the joint staff of Army, Navy and Air Force supporting you with the same enthusiasm to make sure that worked was, was just a great thrill to be part of that team, but also to see the three services come together because we were just learning what we call joint warfare then. Now you see it every day, Afghanistan, Iraq, all over. Australia's very, very good at joint operations, but they were the, they were the real starting times. And uh, it had great support from the then Chief of Defence Force and from the three services. And Australia has since gone on to develop that whole concept. It has to start somewhere. Had to start somewhere. And it was, uh, it was there in that Kangaroo 95. Yeah, so I, I had the ultimate admiral's job, I suppose. I was maritime commander, as it was called then. It's now called Fleet Commander, based in Sydney, looking after the whole fleet, some 8,000 sailors and all the ships. And that was very rewarding, but for completely different reasons of your own individual command. That was rewarding in that you moved around a lot, talked to sailors, talked to young officers, talked to officers in command. Um, you gave direction, you tried to meet their wants, and at the same time you were balancing the strategic directions of having ships in certain places, responding to cyclones, responding to different uh, crises. The Timor crisis came up when I was maritime commander. It was rewarding to be part of the then joint headquarters, which was based in Sydney under uh, an Air Force officer with the Navy and Army and, and Air Force environment commanders, me being the Naval Environment Commander. We had the, uh, the real thrill of choosing um, uh, Major General Peter Cosgrove to be the leader of the force going up to Timor, recommending to Canberra he should be the one, and the story moved on. Peter did a superb job up there commanding all the forces and really uh, sorting out the Timor situation. So that was very exciting. I guess, though, at that time, politics and defence were trying to sort out the way they would go. And um, the minister at the time had a view, I, I guess, of the Defence Force and Navy that I didn't fully agree with. And I started to question whether I really wanted to stay around in the Navy. And I made a decision that I would leave. So at the age of 50, I had potential for another five or so years, perhaps go up and become Chief of Navy if I was lucky enough. But I just made a decision then that I did not really support the way that the Navy was being taken politically. So I thought it was time for me to make a move. No regrets, uh, no real sour grapes. 
it was time to go and join the civilian life. And that was in 2000, and I'm still working in civilian life now, some 17 years later. And what have you been doing in the commercial world? Yeah, so I came down, I worked for the Victorian government for uh, two or three years uh, just to get my feet and then was offered a position with P&O, the global P&O as it was then, based out of Pall Mall in UK. They had a company here in Australia and I was offered a directorship there, which was basically travelling the world doing government business for P&O. Then the P&O got bought off the UK Stock Exchange by Dubai World, so I spent uh, 12 to 18 months working with Dubai World once again. Really exciting. A foreign company had taken over this huge empire that used to be P&O and pushed on. I became directors of companies and then I became a chairman of uh, several companies back in 2007 and 2008 and that's where I sit today. I've had the thrill of joining a Chinese telecommunications company, Huawei, which has been thrilling in more ways than one in that it has been quite controversial in Australia. We were kept out of the MBN. So we've also been a bit of a, a political football in a way. So as chairman, playing the politics at the same time as working with very many enthusiastic people as you do get in an ICT company and growing that company in Australia has just been a fantastic experience. Completely different, but still thrilling. It still makes me get up every day excited. Tell me about the dogs. The dogs. Well, we have two dogs, German Shepherds, but no, the dogs. Uh, the dogs that bring joy to my life is the Defence Bank Foundation dogs. Now, Defence Bank is a small bank in Australia, mainly on, on defence establishments. It has a foundation which gives its money into worthy causes. In setting up the foundation, which I'm lucky enough to be chairman of, we decided to choose an aspect of work that would support Defence Force people, but was quite unique. PTSD sufferers, uh, as everyone knows, occur in not just Defence Force, emergency services as well, but Defence has had a real problem, particularly with recent conflicts. Very early on, there was a group found that providing dogs to PTSD sufferers helped these people recover, improve their lives, and the feedback was coming back rapidly like this. Defence Bank Foundation decided to get in and make this their major target of support. I think we've now put over 200 dogs with PTSD sufferers, ex-defence personnel around Australia. We bring the dogs in. It's a win-win-win. Three wins in this. The dogs come from homes, strays. They're basically strays or, or from you know people trying to rehome dogs. They're not bred specifically for the task. So the dog is saved and given a real job. They're given to at the moment to Bathurst Prison and they're trained by prisoners. So the prisoners train the dogs up to this companion dog stage. And then once they're trained, a graduation occurs and they're handed over to a PTSD sufferer. So the win-win-win is three groups get involved in this fantastic training program. So as I said, we've got 200 dogs out there now. Uh, We're just about to double the program uh, through the corrections, uh, uh, New South Wales corrections, and we hope to take it into Western Australia. Uh, We're not sure what the market is for the number of PTSD sufferers that will benefit from uh, from having these assistance dogs. But even yesterday, the Minister uh, for Veterans Affairs, um, Mr Tian, announced that they're going to have a investigation into the impact and how dogs can help PTSD sufferers. Now, this is fantastic for us. It will give us an idea of the number of people who need these dogs. We've got no idea at the moment. I think it's a fantastic initiative. So exciting. Well, the military takes dogs to war, and I think it's a great idea to bring them and take them to peace. Yeah, yeah. And the dogs that uh, perhaps don't have a future in our society also get a future. And it's something constructive for inmates to... It is. It's just, it's a you know, as I said, it's a win-win-win. In our next and final episode of this mini-series, we will hear closing thoughts and reflections from all nine veterans. Never miss an episode. www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com And join the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. 
Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>